So we're going to start an introduction to the third paragraph of Shema, the third chapter of Shema. Um, like I said, I haven't finished fully preparing the entire paragraph. I have sort of a light, not so light, it's quite a heavy sprinkling for the whole thing. But then sort of picking out from the details what the big theme is. Um, is the purpose of the introduction. And I'm sure by the time we're done, we'll circle back around again um, to review it. But nonetheless, um, it was not so easy, possibly because I don't know enough, not so easy to pull out the main idea without having to pull everything out with it. I don't, pull out, pull in, meaning the introduction is the content. So the first thing to do, which is anyway how we usually start, is to really read through the whole chapter. Try not to give away too many spoilers, although I suppose it doesn't hurt, really. Um, because perhaps the, let me start by saying the big question that jumps out when you read this paragraph is what is it doing here at all? What connection does it have to Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad or to the chapter of Ve'ohavta or the chapter of Ve'haya, which each one flowed or almost like organically, they had to come out, each one from the one before. And Vayomer Hashem Al Moshe Lemor, you can hear it's starting a new passage. Vayomer Hashem, right? That's always like a new thing. Uh, it's a, it's a new passage, doesn't seem to refer to the same ideas as the ones before. Um, and even within itself, yes. <laughs> it's what uh, a friend of mine would call a whopping topic change. It's this. <laughs> you know, if, if you had like a detailed passage on tefillin, we might have been more comfortable because there's been tefillin. If it were mezuzahs, we'd be good with mezuzahs. But tefillin? Or, I mean, but tzitzis, like where did it even come from and where is it going? Because you throw us into tzitzis and then we sort of leap out into Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Hashem is God. So it's really a very, on the surface, it's not, it's not obvious what it's doing there at all except for the fact that if we're lucky, we learned to say Shema when we were young and we've been saying it very often and so it flows naturally off of our lips, even though the meaning of it doesn't necessarily instantaneously leap to us. Okay, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Lemor. Hashem spoke to Moshe, and we will do a little bit on Lemor, um, on this word. Does it mean, did he tell him to say this? Lemor like Lehagid, like to tell it? Or Lemor, the usual translation is saying. Hashem said to Moshe, saying these words, so not not perfectly clear, but certainly a common enough sounding pasuk. Daber el b'nei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, the Omar alehem, and say to them, speak to, <laughs> let's say it again, Daber el b'nei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, the Omar alehem, and talk to them. Ve'asulahem tzitzis, and they should make for themselves tzitzis. Al-Kanfei on the corners or the wings of their garments, L'Dorosam, for their generations. V'nasnu al-Tzitzis HaKonav, and you shall put, and they shall put on the, let's say, strings or fringes of the edges of the garment, P'til T'cheles, a string of T'cheles which is a blue color. And it shall be for you as tzitzis, strings, <laughs> fringes hanging off, which is funny because you just said you're going to make tzitzis, so why should they suddenly become tzitzis if they are tzitzis, right? I mean, you made tzitzis, then you have tzitzis. Made something else, you have something else. But if you made tzitzis, then why? And they shall be tzitzis, or isamoso, and you shall see it. Uzachartem, and you will remember, as kol mitzvos Hashem, all of the mitzvos of God, vaasi samosam, 
and you shall do them. And you will not turn, or turn astray, after your hearts, and after your eyes, which you uh, may... I'm not sure what the word zonim means. Okay, I've been about that one yeah, I'm trying to think. That would, that's interesting. I didn't look to see. Okay, zonim wouldn't. The the normal translation is which you stray after. That's the usual translation of zonim. But I, you know, I need to pull out a rep because it's difficult to see how you translate it that way at all. So as Mom and I were learning. Zona can be one of two things, right? It can be zon, like sustenance or food. Zan is also related to zayin, which means a war implement or a weapon. And zona can be a woman who's a prostitute. So I think we tend to hear that last definition more in the word asheratem zoni macharehem, that you stray after them, that it's referring to non-holy relationships of whatever type. Um, sorry, I just want to see how he even gives like a basic translation of zonim. He says, become unfaithful. He translates zonim as, as unfaithful or unfaithfulness. I'd have to find somewhere else where he might define define that. I mean, we can hear, it, it makes more sense than stray, meaning you understand why it's unfaithful because it's related to the word zona, which is a, a prostitute. Lema'an, in order that tizkiru va'asisem es kol mitzvosai, in order that you will remember and do all of my mitzvos, which sounds like recursive logic on the surface, meaning if we, we will have to go back and define these psukim much more carefully and precisely, because just kind of running through it, it sort of sounds like it just said, you should look at the tzitzis, remember all the mitzvahs of Hashem and do them in order that you should remember them and do them, right? So that's, that's a logic that like you should do it in order that you should do it in order that you should do it. It doesn't, where did I get to? And yet it is getting somewhere. So, right, it isn't in fact circular, but it looks at first as if it could be circular in order for the purpose that, we've had that Laman before, that in order that you should remember and do all of my mitzvos and you will, and be holy for God, for your Lord. I am Hashem, your Lord. Which I took you out of the land of Egypt, Lios Lochem Lelokim, in order to be for you God. Ani Hashem Lokechem, I am Hashem, your God. Okay. Again, it's a there's a lot going on there, but it's not absolutely you know, it's the Torah. It is absolutely clear what it's saying. But somehow we don't absolutely read what it's telling us the first time around. And sometimes even after quite a few times around. <coughs> so let's see where we, where we get. The first, the first thing is to talk about why is this, why is this Parsha here at all? Rav Berkowitz quotes the Mishnah. He says, the Mishnah says, we say the third paragraph in Shema because it is a mitzvah to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every day, at least once a day, maybe twice a day, right? By Lelos, this comes up in, uh, in the Haggadah, right? That Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim by day, also by night. Which means that the basic purpose of including this paragraph here <coughs> is to fulfill the mitzvah of remembering that Hashem took us out of Egypt. So the, the crux of it is that very last verse. Ani Hashem Elokechem asher hotzeisi yaschem me'eretz mitzrayim liyos lochem lelokim ani Hashem Elokechem. Emes. This is truth. That's, um, that's the culmination of it all. We have two very, very 
blatant questions here. Number one is, if the main purpose was that pasuk, why do you say the pasukim before it at all? Number two is, if you're going to choose a paragraph or a sentence, let's say you tell me, well, because you don't want to put in just one verse, you want to put in a whole section. Sefer Shmos is full of possibilities of psukim you could choose to, or sections you could choose to tell you about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You didn't have to take the parsha of Tzitzis out of Bamidbar. Well, you're already remembering about it, right? Take something like what we've been seeing in the Parsha Shir. And the third thing, which is not maybe on the surface, because you'd have to read the Rambam, which I did not tell you now, but Rabbi Berkowitz, who has read the Rambam and was teaching, <laughs> I was listening to a shear he was teaching, a recording of a shear he was teaching, explaining the davening mostly in accordance with the Rambam. So I haven't had a chance to go back and look it up myself. He says the Rambam doesn't mention this as one of the mitzvahs. Not that he doesn't, I, I, he may mention remembering it's Yisrael Mitzrayim, but he doesn't mention this part of Shema as being one of the mitzvahs. So... If it's, it's a mitzvah to remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim, why wouldn't the Rambam, if this is how you fulfill it, then shouldn't he point to it? And he doesn't seem to. <coughs> okay. Before we go on, I want to just read Rav Schwab's introduction also to this uh, section. He says, According to some opinions, the inclusion of this parsha in Kriyashma is Del Raisa. It is a mitzvah of the Torah of remembering Yitzhak Mitzrayim. According to most poskim, however, it is only Midzir Rabbanon. This whole section is really a Rabbanon, except for the reference of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is a fulfillment of the mitzvah Zasei Deoraisa, requiring one to remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim every day and every night. And the Gemara states as follows. Parsha Tzitzis, the chapter of Tzitzis, which is another name for this, not usually called Vayomer, the parsha of Tzitzis, Mipnema For what purpose was it established? Why is it there? Amar Rabbi Yehuda bar Chaviva. Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Chaviva, said, Because it contains five important ideas. This is a Gemara in Brachos, Daf Yud Beis, Mitzvah Tzitzis. First major important idea is, one, two, three, four, no, hold on has five main ideas in addition to mitzvah tzitzis, which doesn't answer why you're talking about tzitzis, right? I mean, you have five ideas plus tzitzis. Well, okay, but we wanted to know. Never mind. First idea is Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The second idea is ol mitzvos, the yoke of mitzvos. Uh, here's how he translates them. Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because it's ani Hashem lokecha masher hotzesi yeshcha me'eretz Mitzrayim. So the, the Gemara is saying when you read that Pasuk, you remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is also fulfillment of the Mitzvah del Raisa. Number two is Ol Mitzvos, the burden of Mitzvos, the yoke of Mitzvos, the burden is such a negative word, which is Uzachartem Eskol Mitzvos Hashem. When you say the words Uzachartem Eskol Mitzvos Hashem, you shall remember all the Mitzvos of Hashem. That means that when you, when you read this out loud, and especially when you look at the tzitzis, but if you don't happen to be a tzitzis wearer, right? <laughs> the other 52% of us. When you say these words, you remember that you're obligated to fulfill all of Hashem's commandments. I hope we're going to make progress on that question as well. Das minim. Das minim means knowing, I guess, knowing what to answer to someone who's an apikoris or knowing how to stay away from him. This is when you read the words, Velo sasuru achare levavchem. You will not stray after your heart, is that you will avoid the influence of people who are minim. So I'll just interject here. He doesn't explain how he came to say that, and it could be the Gemara explains further on that. Um, why would not straying after your heart have something to do with avoiding the company of people who are atheists or non-believers or whatever? Um, but I could say that from just what I've witnessed in my own experience, right, it's exactly when a person is looking after their heart, when they feel that their heart is empty in some way. Maybe they're feeling unloved. Maybe they're going through a rough time. It's a dark time, so they're not 
feeling Hashem's presence in their life, even though he's there. Um, maybe the people around them are not treating them well. When a person's heart feels starved, that is exactly when they're much more likely to go and cling to whoever will be there for them. Um, a, a, sort of a 100% a matching example, I have a friend who is, who's Jewish, she's born Jewish, and in high, she came from a very dysfunctional family, and in high school she became very involved with evangelical Christianity and became a pastor, a minister, and married an evangelical pastor, and they started their own, um, what do you call it? Not sure. mission. Yeah, like um, ministry, mm -hmm. and very, very involved with that. Eventually she actually came around through the way she was learning. She ended up coming around to Torah. She realized at some point she started learning more and more Hebrew because she wanted to be able to read God's word in the original. And... Um, Somehow, even in, I, probably, she must have been reading also in English. And she realized that these verses did not mean what she had been always told that they meant. And so she was trying to keep the Bible as best as she could, according to how she actually understood it. Um, and ended up coming all the way around to becoming an Orthodox Jew, and her husband converted, and her children. Yeah, but but <laughs> it's a very, very long path. And a, it's a very interesting story. I would say, like, she was searching is sort of true. It's more like she's, she's really an idealist. She really is trying to do what's right. How did you know this woman? I know her in, in Israel, Panina Taylor. She actually comes to L.A. occasionally to speak. Okay. You know, she comes on her on speaking tour. She's very interesting. She has other topics she's interesting on, too, but usually people do want to hear her story because it's quite a story. And how they ended up becoming Orthodox, which was by going to missionize to the Orthodox. And, you know, it's, it's quite a story. And she's a really remarkable woman. Okay, she wrote a book too. Hirhur Avera, contemplation of Avera. This is the fourth idea that we learn about, which is v'acharei after your eyes. Meaning, if you let your eyes sit on that which it shouldn't see. Sometimes you can protect your eyes completely. Sometimes your eyes are going to fall upon something that you didn't expect to be there. Like when they had the digital signs, you'd be looking at you know, a picture of a puppy dog, and the next thing you knew it was a lingerie advertisement. So you, know, you could have it happen that you're looking at something, but then there's a concept that you don't contemplate it. You don't stop and think about it. You close your eyes or you look elsewhere. And here her avodazara, contemplation of avodazara, which would be when you say the words atem zonim, the, that which you stray after, that which you become unfaithful to God. It's, it's a zona, it's a prostitution, but not in the relationship between yourself and perhaps a spouse, but actually a prostitution of the relationship between yourself and God, an unfaithful relationship with God. Okay. Coming back to what Rav Berkowitz said. So the way he answered the question about the mitzvah and the fulfilling the mitzvah of Kriya Shema and uh, fulfilling the mitzvah of remembering Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim and doing that within Kriya Shema, he says, by remembering Kriya Shema at the end of... By, I woke up really early. <laughs> by remembering Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, at the end of Kriyashma, what we do is come full circle on the avoda of Kriyashma, which is Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim. Now, the way he explained it, we're going to go into some more depth about that. I think, I think based on especially the groundwork we've done, we can go a little bit farther with it. But where he took it to was that the essence of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is that nature is totally under Hashem's control. And he chose the Jewish people in order to be, have a special relationship as our God. And there is reward and punishment. These are messages that come out of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. Okay, that should remind you of the Ramban at the end of Parsha's Bo. Rabbi After spoke about it in Shul this week. Um, we have spoken about it before. I know we, uh, last time we saw it was probably mezuzah. But... Maybe it's worth taking a quick look again. The idea that remembering Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim 
is an is a way of being mekabel malchoshemayim. That there is an equivalency. When you remember God took us out of Egypt, you are declaring that God is king of the world. I just want to make a note. so I won't forget in like six months when we get there. Okay. <laughs> All right. There we go. Ramban comments on Tefillin and he says that in this context, he's going to tell us the fundamental principle of many, many, many of the mitzvot in the Torah. This should sound extremely familiar, right? We just heard this in the last week. Or some of us. Whoever wasn't sure heard it in the last week. Heyos avodazara ba'olam. Me'es heyos avodazara ba'olam. Since the time that avodazara began in the world. Mime enosh. In the days of Enosh, Hechelu Hadeos Lehishtabesh Be'emuna. People's ideas and knowledge about Emuna started to get scrambled. Mehem Kofrim Be'ikar. Some of them would deny the Ikar. They, they denied the existence of God at all. Ve'omrim, and they would claim Ki Ha'olam Kadmon. That the world is, uh, there's a word for that, prime, prime, uh, the world always existed, essentially, right? Kachashu Bashem, they denied God, Vayomru, and said, Lohu, he is not, there is not, no, there's no such thing as God the creator, the world always existed. Umehem machachishim b'idaso ha-pratis, and there were others who didn't deny that there was a God who created the world, but they denied that he knew specifically what was going on in the world. Amru, Echayeda, Kale, they said, how's it possible for God to keep track of everything that's going on down here? And anyway, who says that, that God the Creator even has awareness of us? Okay, so that's, that sounds a little bit odd, but it's not, uh, it is very odd. <laughs> Sorry. That sounds odd and is odd, and yet there are. I can't say modern, but still existing, let's say, uh, religions that believe, I don't know, things like, you know, the world exists on the back of a turtle or, or was created as the detritus from some other event of some godly or divine creation. In other words, the creator then would not necessarily have to be aware that he had created anything. There, if, if, if someone's going to believe that the world was created by, you know, an, an animal jumping up out of the mud and the bits of the mud sprinkled around and that created the world, then there's no reason to assume that that creator knows anything about what it has created or cares. Which, which does help lead one to understand why anyone would come up with a creation myth like that. What service, what, what service does it provide to them? The service it provides is it does not demand any allegiance to the creator. It, you always have to understand, so where does that come from? Because why would someone go in that direction? And there were others who acknowledged that the creator does in fact know what's going on. But they deny that he cares very much. So this would perhaps resemble a little bit more of what you know might have been the Greek or the Roman kind of philosophy, where there are well, in that case, you have a pantheon of gods, but whatever. There's usually one at the at the top of the stack, and maybe he is able to know what goes on in the world and even pays attention to some of it, but really doesn't care enough to pay attention to everything that's going on. The Yasu Adam kids gay hayam. And in, they make people as if they were the fish of the sea. You know, we're a bunch of guppies swimming around, more or less interchangeable. 
and the god up there couldn't care less any more than when you dip into a tank of guppies because you want to bring some home in a little, you know, Ziploc bag. You really care which three guppies you pulled out. They're all the same to you. That God is not going to, to be bothered supervising them. Which means that there would be no reward or punishment. Again, there's kind of a clue why that would be a serviceable... You, you, you start to understand why Chazal tell us that people only do Avodah Zarah out of some kind of foolishness or selfishness. When you first hear that, you're like, but wait, aren't there people who do Avodah Zarah with good intentions, right? Idealistically, it's not denying that. What it's saying is, where does somebody come to that from? Mm-hmm. It's not like we're talking about, well, if somebody was raised to believe you know, that he fell off the back of a turtle, why would he? That's not the point. The point is that why would somebody come to a Avodah in the first place? That's going to be in order to serve some kind of some kind of emotional or physical desire. In this case, if God, if the creator didn't care about paying attention to what's going on below, then there's obviously no reward and punishment. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you don't get caught. Amru, those people say, Oh, God has abandoned the earth. He created it and turned his back. When God is desirous of a community or an individual, and he makes in their midst a sign or a wonder, by changing the way the world runs, the nature of the world, the laws of nature, vitivo, it becomes clarified to everybody, the nullification, the, the, the error of all of those opinions. Kulam, all of them. Because a wondrous sign, more teaches that there is a Lord of the universe, who renews it, and he knows about it, and he supervises it, and he is able to have power over anything he wishes. And if God chooses to announce in advance that this miracle is going to happen through a Navi, then there's another thing that's added to all of this sudden crystal clarity that comes into existence, which is the truth of Nivua, of prophecy. What does that mean? What's the truth of prophecy? Man's, God speaks to man. He communicates with us. And he reveals secrets to his servants, the Nevi'im. Therefore, through the revelation of a miracle, and especially a miracle which changes the laws of nature, contradicts the laws of nature, and is announced in advance by a Navi, the entire Torah is, is, is it established? Isn't it established? Um, sort of like proven, supported. The entire Torah is supported. Therefore, the pasuk says about miracles, in order that you should know that I am God in the midst of the land. It's specifically that. It's teaching you to know that God is in the land. He's not off somewhere else busy with other ideas. He has not abandoned this land, this earth, to just coincidence and whatever will happen to happen, as some people were claiming. The Amar, the Torah also says, One purpose of miracles is in order that you should know that the land belongs to God. It shows that he created it. He put the power into it. They are his because he created them out of nothing. And the Torah also says about a miracle, in order that you should know that there is none like me in all the land, that demonstrates his ability. That he rules over and dominates over everything else. Nothing can hold back his hand. These are all things that the Egyptians either denied or were skeptical about. 
If so, then, miracles and wondrous and great signs, Edim Ne'emanim, are reliable testimony in our faith in God and in the Torah altogether, that we can trust in God and we can trust in the Torah. And because God will not do a miracle every time every Russia or denier waves his hand, which, by the way, if you think about it, would undo the whole point, because then everyone would be used to that, and they would say, well, that's nature, that nature sometimes reverses or goes sideways or whatever, right? So that would completely undo the impact of the miracle anyway. Yitzave Osanu, Hashem has commanded us, Shenase Tomid Zikaron Veos La Sheroinenu. God has commanded us that we should always have Zikaron, a reminder, Veos, and a sign or a symbol to that which our eyes saw. Venatika Davar El Benenu, we should copy this over for our children, Uvnehem Livnehem, and their children to their children, Uvnehem Lador Acharon and to their children, unto the last generation. And the Torah is very strict about this. For example, with, with mitzvahs that relate to remembering Pesach, like not eating chametz, that it's a chiyuv of kares. Like a person is cutting himself off from God and the Jewish nation by eating chametz on Pesach. Why? Such a small thing. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But because it's exactly a denial, the purpose, one of the main purposes of this mitzvah is to remember those miracles. The Hitzrich and the Torah uh, made us obligated, that we should write down everything which we saw in truth, and in signs and in miracles that, that occurred to us, and we should put them on our hands and we should put them between our eyes. And write it also on the doorways of our houses and the mezuzos. This sounds like Shema, right? Sounds like Shema. Okay. I think we may have read this even at the beginning when we, we did. I think when we talked about the first paragraph of Shema. We should say it out loud with our mouths every morning and every night. Kemosha Amru, as we say, Emes Vyatsev Del Raisa. We'll get to that at the end, Bezar Sashem. That Emes Vyatsev is Del Raisa. Saying that this is the truth is a biblical command. When we end Shema by saying Emes, Vyatsev, Venachon, this is a biblical mitzvah. Why is that a biblical mitzvah? You're establishing that God, yes, He created the universe. He knows what's going on. He is able to take control, and he does take control. There is Sahar and Onesh. There is personal relationship with God. He communicates with us. He took us out of Egypt. As the Torah says, In order that you shall remember and remind yourself of the day you went out of Egypt, all the days of your life. And you should make a sukkah every year and go like live, like you are reenacting that you're leaving Egypt every year. He says there are many, many other mitzvahs that are zecher leitzias mitzrayim. Zecher means a reminder, but you could almost, I, I hate to say it, like a souvenir, meaning not in, a, not in a cheesy way. Something that every time you look at it, you use it, you do it, it reminds you of where it came from. That's zecher leitzias mitzrayim. Then just comes to you because it comes out from inside of your mind into the front. All of this is in order that for all generations we should have testimony to the miracles, that they not be forgotten, and there will not be opening for one who is a skeptic to deny faith in God. Because somebody who buys a mezuzah for a zuz, the kavau bepischo, and hangs it on his doorway, and thinks about what it means, in this relatively small action, he has pronounced that there's a creator of the world, and that that creator of the world 
knows what goes on in the world and cares and supervises about what's going on in the world, and that he communicates with mankind as to what his will is, and in this way he is showing his trust and strengthening faith in every corner of the Torah. This is all above and beyond the simple gratitude due to God for the fact that he took us out of slavery and made us free. There's, there's, there's a whole bigger picture even beyond that. And therefore, Chazal have taught us, you shall be careful with a light mitzvah as much as with a strict mitzvah. They are all very beloved and very sweet. Because every moment that a person is doing a mitzvah, he's, he's acknowledging and praising and thanking and, and recognizing God. All mitzvos are in order that we should rely on God and thank him for creating us. This is the intention of our creation. We have no other purpose to being created, really. And there, that is the interest that God takes in us, that we should recognize him and dedicate ourselves to him and to formalizing and, and not formalizing, proclaiming that he's there. And for this purpose, we gather together, we raise our voices in prayer, we come together in shuls, in order to praise God and to publicize him to the world. Goes on, it's worth reading, but not today. Okay, that's the Ramban. So the Ramban is supporting, let's say, this idea that when we remember the going out of Egypt, just to remind you of what, why did I bring this Ramban? When we remember the going out of Egypt at the end of Shema, we are coming full circle in the Avoda of Shema. When we started with Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that's Kabbalah's Malchus Shemai. That is the proclamation that there is one God who created the universe, and he is Elokeinu. He is both what, what we perceive as being different aspects of Din and Rachamim is really one God who created the universe and is involved with it. So mentioning Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim specifically now, because you could fulfill the mitzvah of remembering Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim any time of day. It doesn't have to be connected to Shema. You could do it independently. But there's a really good purpose to putting it at the end of Shema which is that it is a fulfillment of the avoda of Shema, which is Kabbalah's Malchus Shema. So now I want to take this another step, or step and a half, <clears throat> which is to now address the question, <coughs> excuse me, of why tzitzis. So, okay, good. You've convinced us. We need to say, we need to talk about that God took us out of Mitzrayim when we finished Shema. Good, we're, we're, we're fine. Why tzitzis? Of all the possible ways to remember going out of Mitzrayim, why tzitzis? The tzitzis themselves are not a zeher to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So what are they doing here, other than being attached to that verse? What do they have to do with Shema, or what do they have to do with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? There's a subtle connection here. Rabbi Berkowitz quotes Rav Moshe, Chazal say, Shkula mitzvah tzitzis letariag mitzvahs. The mitzvah of tzitzis is equal in weight to all 613 mitzvos. And therefore, Chazal say, a person should wear them every day. A man should wear them every day. We're still going to have to tackle about the women. You don't need tzitzis. Chazal say, doing the mitzvah of tzitzis, this is as important as all 613 mitzvos. We know that Rashi brings down um, I think this is also from Chazal, really, that there's different combinations. You add up the knots and the twists and the number of strings, and you'll get to 613. So when you look at it, it reminds you of all the myths. We're going to talk about that more in the middle of the paragraph. Rav Moshe says, hang on. Tzitzis is an unusual mitzvah. 
we would put it in the category of not a mitzvah chiyuvis, a mitzvah you're obligated to do. It's a mitzvah kiyumis. It's a mitzvah in being done, which means if you wear tzitzis on the garment, you have done a mitzvah. But the Torah does not command us to wear the garment. Unfortunately, this is very well known. Why do I say unfortunately? Because now there happens to be a phenomenon, this is a relatively new phenomenon, of people, mostly young people, saying, oh, it's heavier, it's more to wear, it's, you know, if it were in style, that wouldn't matter, but, right? And uh, the Torah, I don't have to wear, I just have to wear tzitzis if I'm wearing a four-cornered garment, therefore, I don't really want to wear it at all. And that makes us uncomfortable. But why does it make us so uncomfortable? Because the truth is, if you're not wearing a four-cornered garment, you don't have to wear tzitzis. It's a mitzvah kiyumis, not a mitzvah chiyuvis. It's not an obligatory mitzvah, but it's a mitzvah if you're doing it. Rav Moshe says, why would a mitzvah that is only voluntary be equal to all the other mitzvahs? And Hashem could have made the mitzvah obligatory. And it's supposed to remind us of all the other ones. He says, this is because all mitzvahs are really chiyuvi, for the most part. Almost every other mitzvah is obligatory. You have to do it. If you weren't wearing the garment, you'd have to put it on. But really, the basic, the basic chiyuv of all mitzvahs is the chiyuv of uvacharta v'chaim, choose life. Choose life. That's the essential obligation of the Jew, the bechira of chaim. And therefore, there's an aspect. And so there's an element here where the mitzvah of tzitzis is specifically chosen at the end of talking about the hayayim shamoah and there's sahar and onesh and you have to do all the mitzvahs and you have to avoid all of the averos. There's an element here of uvacharta v'chaim. Here's the main thing. Choose to do the mitzvahs. Okay. So that, that's how Rav Berkowitz quotes Rav Moshe. Um... I want to just add another layer onto that, or perhaps it's under that. Maybe we just need more foundation. When we say that tzitzis is not obligatory, it's voluntary. And what Chazal have said is they recommend you should always wear it by day because it is balances, it weighs as much as all the other mitzvahs. It's not really that the tzitzis are voluntary. It's that the beged is voluntary. If you're wearing the beged, the tzitzis are obligatory. Yeah? Okay. What does that mean? Let me just... I want to think about what that means in terms of what we've learned in the past. It means that when you choose to put on the beged, you are choosing to become chayav. The minute you put on a four-cornered garment, you are making a choice to become chayav to put on tzitzis onto the garment. That pattern, I choose to be obligated, that does sound familiar. That does sound like something we talked about where I didn't maybe recognize it before. That is the essence of Kabbalah's HaTorah. Hashem says, will you accept the Torah? We say yes. And then he hangs the mountain over us and says, you better choose it or else you'll die. Right? Well, that's so that we know that if we hadn't done it, it would have been a disaster. But it's also so that we know we better not go against it. But the choice was free up front. It is the same pattern of Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim. So what do I mean by that? I'm going to read you something from Rav Schwab's explanation of Shema Yisrael, which we really did learn two years ago or whenever that was that we were there. So here's the quote. This is not about V'hayayim Shemoah or Tzitzis. This is about Shema Yisrael and Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim. What does Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim mean? What does it mean to say, I accept that God is my king? Despite the fact that every human being has a free choice, Bechira, 
to accept or deny HaKadosh Baruch Hu as his God. The saying of Shema Yisrael is a declaration that he is giving away this freedom and accepting all Malchus Shemayim. I'll just remind you that we also saw that he referenced it back to Az Yashir, way back when, right, that the Jews said, Hashem Yimloch Le'olam Fa'ed, God will be king in the future, and that there was a difficulty in making that final leap of saying Hashem Melech Olam Fa'ed. God is king now, I relinquish my free choice, whatever he tells me I'll do, right? Okay, that was the reminder. Back to Rav Schwab. This does not mean simply the acceptance of the fact of Ol Malchus Shamayim, that there is a heavenly king. It's not that I accept that it's true. When we say accepting God as king, it doesn't mean, oh yeah, that's true, similar to the way one accepts the election of a new president of the United States, whether one likes it or not. You vote for a Republican and a Democrat gets elected. So do you accept that he's, a, yeah, sure. He, uh, yes, it's a fact, he's the president. And in fact, he could maybe, I don't know, he has certain powers, yes, he could send us out to war, he could do all kinds of things, right? Because he really is, and I accept that fact. He says, that's not what it means to accept Malchus Shemayim. Rather, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven means that he has given away his Bechira and accepts HaKadosh Baruch Hu unconditionally, similar to locking himself up and throwing away the key. It's like saying, why is it described as, you can say Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim, you can say Kabbalah's Ol Malchus Shemayim. What does it mean, Ol Malchus Shemayim? He emphasizes the Ol over here, the yoke. It's like you walked under the yoke, put it on yourself, and locked, I forget what it's called, there's a crossbow, I think is what it's called, there's some kind of bow of the yoke that you put around the animal's neck that holds the, the yoke over their neck. It's like you put that on, lock yourself into it, and say, okay, here I am. Am I going to have second thoughts later? doesn't really matter. I'm locked in now. This conviction is to be so strong that nothing in the world can ever take it away from him. That was the Kabbalah's Omal HaShemayim. It was saying, I have free choice, and the ultimate use of that free choice is to choose God and to choose his will and to lock myself into it so that, this is now me taking that next step past it, what happens if later on I do have second thoughts? Well, if I'm, really, if I'm really of the conviction that I've locked myself in, I will have to stick it out. And I will stick it out until such time as I become re-inspired again. The mitzvos do this for us, right? This is Kabbalah's Malchus Shemayim. So we started with which is passionate and love and, and then there's this commitment, right? When you get married, do people have second thoughts later? Yeah. Hopefully, it's not so bad that you can't feel that you're basically locked in and you keep going with it until it gets better, right? If you feel it's too easy to jump out, you're, you're like the cow who said, yeah, I volunteer. Okay, never mind. I'm done. There's something about that locking ourselves into the commitment. That's the ultimate Bechira. So now, having said Shema Yisrael, this is the truth. We're Mechabal Malchus Shemayim. And we're Mechabal with love, Ve'ohavta. Ve'ohavta has some mitzvahs talking about Torah all the time, right? That's how you keep it alive is love and inspiration and the good times. And then we have a Hayaim Shemoa. Maybe you weren't talking about it all the time. Maybe Hashem hid himself in some way. Maybe you had too much, you didn't turn to him. And things start to go downhill. And it isn't so inspiring. And a person feels like they need a little more love. And they need a little more of who knows what. Attention. That's where Schar and Onish comes in. And the memory that there is right and there is a wrong and there will be reward and there will be punishment, to feel this is Kabbalah's old mitzvos. That is the avoda of Ayam Shemoah, is accepting that we're locking ourselves into the mitzvos. And by continuing to do those mitzvos, because now we feel obligated by them, even when we weren't in the mood, they were exciting at the beginning. When you're first married, it's really exciting to cook dinner for someone or do their laundry. But after a while, it might start to feel like an obligation. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, but, but if you feel that it's an obligation, you might keep on doing it. And then where do you get back around to? 
you get back around to and you start talking about those things again and you reignite the feeling of love and, and, and caring and you're really glad that you were doing those mitzvahs all along because that's what brings you back. So then we get to this paragraph of Vayomer. And it seems like one way we can read the Parsha of Tzitzis is telling us the follow-on from Vahayaim Shamoa. In Vahayaim Shamoa, Hashem says, I told you what would happen if you didn't feel fully committed. But you're not out of the relationship. I don't let go of you. So there will be Sahar and Onesh. I don't just say, fine, go your own way. You're stuck, and I won't let go of you, and we'll come back together. But what happens when you get to Vayomer? Vayomer, Hashem says, tell the Jewish people to make tzitzis on the corners of their garments for all generations, and on the tzitzis, they should add a string of blue. And you'll see it, and you'll remember the mitzvahs of Hashem and do them so that you will not stray after your heart and after your eyes. This is like, how do you not fall into the trap you fell into in Vahayayim Shema? Or let's put it another way. You stumbled and fell, and now you got up again. That's when you say, I don't want to let that happen to me again. What am I going to do differently to prevent it? It occurred to me, we mentioned couple months ago, I guess, about Yehuda. Yehuda, and he met up with Tamar, right? We talked about Chosamcha and Psilcha, and it tied in with Tzitzis. And he sent his friend to send back the payment. And there was a beautiful point there, which was the definition of a friend, which is someone you can even tell what you've done wrong to, and they still hold by you, they still will respect you and care about you and help you out. But later on it occurred to me something else. Why is he sending a friend? Why didn't he go? I mean, it's nice that he had a friend that he could trust that way, but why do you have to tell his friend at all? Mm-hmm. And it suddenly hit me, of course. The first time he went down the road to Timna, okay, what, what happened to him I'm not sure that he knew necessarily what the Medrash tells us, which was that this was not under his control. Hashem sent a malach of taiva. But he certainly must have been able to tell this was way out of control. (laughs) Right? Like, of course he didn't go back. Yeah? Right? Like, I don't think I'm, I'm making a big leap here. Of course he didn't go back. Right? I, I, I did not see this in any of the Mepharshim. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you right now. But, but when seen from a different angle, it becomes blazingly. It's almost obvious. Of course, no Mepharshim is going to talk about it. That's the process of tshuva, of not doing this. Yeah, but you know, we think about a process of tshuva in like a clinical way. This isn't clinical, this is terror. I know what happens if I go into a casino. There's no way I'm going to drive through Las Vegas. I will fly to wherever I'm going, okay? I I have no justification for myself for what happened when I went to Timna. Or not to Timna. She's the daughter of Timna. Um, When he went to Einha, whatever it is, Einha Derech, when he walked past there, he's not going to go back to pay her. Now, the truth is he could go back. I mean, he's married to her. So you would say, well, what's so wrong with that? But you could understand what's wrong with it. It was an out-of-control thing. It wasn't, oh, how lovely you met. Like, that's not where he wants to go. Okay. You've gone there in Vahaya Im Shemoa, and we've brought ourselves back, and Hashem has helped us back. Now... The question is, how do we never, ever go there again? By the way, the answer to that question is going to be, it means I have to make a choice to give up my choice, right? 
I mean, because the ultimate level of Bechira would be to go and sit in a casino and not spend any money, even though your wallet is full. But the right thing to do is to say, I've been there, done that. What am I going to do to prevent myself from having to be faced with that choice? What can I choose now when my mind is in control so that I don't have to try and make an intellectually honest decision when my taiva is in control? This is the avoda of Shema. We said, what is Shema? Shema Yisrael is the head. It's the intellect. It's the Bechira. It's how you serve Hashem. It all comes back together again. This is the culmination of Shema. This is the Avoda of Shema. It, the Avoda of Shema, yes, it is, all, it is at its source the love and the passion and the fire, but you know what? Feelings don't last forever. They only last forever when you tie them to something tangible. So we say, how am I going to make sure I never get back there again? You know what Hashem says? Make a garment choose to put it on. You have to have a mitzvah where I'm choosing it, but once I choose to put it on, I'm chayav in the tzitzis. I'm chayav in something that will remind me of every mitzvah. We'll talk about later why that would work or not, but let's just stick with this. I'm chayav in something that every time I look at it, it will remind me of how I felt. It will remind me of the shame I felt. It will remind me of how much I didn't want to go there. Why do you have to do that? Why can't you stop with the first two paragraphs of Shema? Just knowing, here's what will happen. And from our point of view, here's what did happen, right? The prophecy of the desert is our history. Most of it. There's a little bit of it that's still our prophecy. Most of this is history already. Shouldn't that be enough to stop us? Well, in the same way that the passionate feelings of ahava are on an emotional level, they don't last forever as feelings, or at least constant, constant, thank you. It's not that they don't last forever. They last forever, but they don't stay with you constantly at the same amplitude at all times. Mm -hmm. Also, the fear of the punishment is also emotional and will also not stay constant at all times. So in order to finalize the avoda of Shema, we have to say, how do I use my intellect to choose? To choose Hashem and to choose Him when my intellect can be strong and my taiva is down. And the way you do that is when you have the strong feeling, whether it's the feeling of love and then you commit to doing the mitzvot, or it's the feeling of fear of the violation and you commit to, I'm going to put that garment on every day. And every time I see those strings sticking out of it, I will remember I'm committed to mitzvos. You'll remember all the mitzvos and do them. I'll remember I'm committed to mitzvos. And even if I'm not on fire that day, I'll still be with the mitzvos and I'll remember and I will stick with them. And even if I don't feel it, it will remind me that I felt it. Sometimes the reminder of feeling it is enough to bring it up in your mind, that feeling again. And sometimes it's enough you remember that you felt it. So you know it'll come back because feelings do come and go that way. Okay. So why is there a visual aid on the table? This is an example. Well, if the, something we're talking about here is you have to take something and you have to take the passion and you have to take the fire, whether it's the fire of enthusiasm or the fire of burning shame, and make a tangible zecher for it. Is to take something and say, this is the zecher. This is the thing that recalls it to my mind. This is the thing that when that idea or that feeling is not in my mind, I look at it and I remember that I felt that way. And this is a way of tying us down and keeping things going even over the long term, even when the feelings themselves behind it come and go. So, here's my, my visual aid. This rock like a somewhat ordinary rock. But I'm going to tell you the story of the rock. Okay, the story of this rock is that I was in Caesarea, Caesarea. Caesarea is a Roman city in Israel. It was the Roman seat of government. Um, all the fancy rich people lived there. Some still do. They don't call themselves Romans. <laughs> okay, and you can go and you can see this, what is left of this city. 
So what's left is not a lot. Uh, relative, as, as, as you know, 2,500-year-old ruins go, it's a lot. But you know, the cities go, it's not, not a whole lot. You can see the outline of a palace. You can see a pretty stunning sort of swimming pool built right into the ocean so that you can sit and soak and not have waves. Uh, you can look at incredible views up and down the coast because it's in a sort of a bay. So either way you look, you have a really good overview of the area. You can see the chariot racing arena, um, the theater, the amphitheater. We were there and there were a bunch of Italians on tour. They were singing Italian operas on the theater. It was like, wow, the Romans came back, you know. <laughs> they don't consider themselves Romans, but you know, okay. And then we're walking down there and there's the beach comes right up, you know, right near the the chariot racing track. Um, and I was with Baruch, and he said to me, you know, Rabbi Akiva was killed here, right? The 10 martyrs, I didn't know. Um, yeah, I thought they all were killed in Rome, but not perfectly clear. Rabbi Akiva was at least tried here, maybe killed in Caesarea. So there we are, we're on the beach in Caesarea. And there's this rock on the beach. And this rock is full of holes that were created by the water pounding against the rock. And you look at the rock and you, you think of Rabbi Akiva because Rabbi Akiva looked at a rock full of holes made by water and said, if the soft water can get work its way through a rock if you give it enough time then maybe the words of Torah could get into my heart if I gave it enough time and he gave it enough time and he became one of the greatest leaders we've ever had if not for Rabbi Akiva we would have no Torah at all um, because all the Talmudim died and it's only the Torah through his students that really has continued and so you go there and you can pick up the rock and there's a lot of worn out rocks in Caesarea. Um, and the ocean is wearing away the Roman Empire too. It might just take a really, really long time. But Rabbi Akiva keeps getting stronger because the more time it goes, the more time it goes, right? And I don't think a day would go by that we don't mention Rabbi Akiva and remember what he taught us. Okay, so I'm looking at the stone and thinking about it. So, of course, I brought the stone home. Why should I bring the stone home? Because when I look at the stone, I remember the feeling of, I guess, the power of Hashem's small, hash, what appear to be small hashgachos over a very long time. The idea that there is a kind of a vast sweep of history that we're part of as well. And we only see little pieces, but over time, there's something being accomplished. It might just take a really, really, really long time. You know, it says um, that when in the Messianic times, Hashem will exchange our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. Well, if we have hearts of stone, maybe it really does take a really long time to get through to us and make the change that's required. <laughs> maybe that's why Gullahs is really, really a long, long time. And thinking about Rabbi Akiva, and it says if Jerusalem is up and Caesarea is down, that you could believe that. Caesarea is up and Jerusalem's down, you could believe that. But if they're both up, no. Both down, no. The two sides of a teeter-totter. It's one or the other. So, yeah, of course I kept it. And I kept it because when I look at it, it's not that I believe this rock has special powers. Right? I mean, maybe it does. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> not because the rock has special powers. It's because what some people would dismiss and say, well, this is just a symbol, right? Because it's not the real power. This rock, it's not the real story. Of course the rock's not the real story. But when I look at the rock, I have something tangible that reminds me that I felt a certain way. And even if when I'm reminded it doesn't fully awaken the entire emotional impact of that moment that was, it reminds me that it was. And will keep me on track with that idea for however long it takes. Well, this is the rock. Okay, so this is what I am suggesting 
by putting together the different ideas that we've learned today and also over the last few years um, about why Tzitzis is the end of Shema, why this is the Parsha of Tzitzis. It's because it's a choice to be Chayev. I'm using my choice to make myself Chayev, and it can be in day-to-day -day things. It can be saying, I'm not going to even go there. I'm not going to have a television in my house rather than day after day be, yes, I'll switch off the commercial, I'll watch this show, not that show, right? I just won't have it. It can be over kind of the bigger sweep of the years of our lives, saying, maybe I don't feel so enthusiastic right now, but I'm in it. And I'm in it for the long haul. And I know I have things to remind me that I was excited about this, and I will be patient until such time as I feel that again.